Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, January 5th, 2017. Sorry for that short delay. I had a few technological problems. Happy New Year to everyone. For 10 years, I've been pursuing the truth about the largest economic fraud in human history and educating as many people, lawyers, judges, and government officials as I can. As time passes, we get piece by piece the truth and the way the banks did it. Now it's time to turn our attention to what to do about it. And tonight's guest, Patricia Rodriguez, will help you decide on your options and strategy in confronting the illegal acts and the consequences of those. Stay tuned. We're going to be talking about legal options, and I remind the audience that while Google is fine and very helpful, don't mistake your Google search with a law degree and years of court experience. Here are some basic rules in hiring a lawyer. The lawyer is not a therapist. Of course, he or she wants to know if you have suffered emotional distress, and that will come out over the term of the case. Don't make the interview or phone call so long that the lawyer feels that you're going to need a lot of hand-holding, because if he or she believes that to be true, then the fees will rise, and proper probably substantially. Have a review and report done by somebody who knows how to put the facts together so the lawyer can quickly determine your status, whether he or she can do something of value for you. Be informed, be well read, process the information, but don't think you know more than the lawyer does. You don't. If you do, think that you know more than the lawyer does, you're in the wrong place. What you don't know has filled thousands of volumes of case decisions, statutes, rules, and regulations. Go to a lawyer as soon as possible. Waiting for the last minute, which is what most people seem to do, only makes the job harder. And it's not just more difficult, it's even impossible at times 
to undo some of the damage that's been done. So go to a lawyer as soon as you have a problem. So if you've already filed a 200-page complaint, don't think the lawyer is going to read it, and don't believe that he or she has any interest in hearing about it. Every good lawyer knows their job is to narrow the issues to the ones that are most likely to get the most traction. More is not better. Not only will the lawyer not read your 200-page complaint, but the judge as well. The judge is processing, even now, many more cases than they have the facilities to process. A typical judge will read at most the first two pages and skim the rest. Don't expect miracles. The deck is stacked against homeowners even now and even though there's a rising number of homeowners who are winning their cases. The lawyer doesn't owe you anything. The fact that you have been screwed by the banks or maybe some forensic analyst or a prior lawyer or whatever doesn't mean that the lawyer you want to take your case has any obligation to take your case or to do it for free or to do it on a contingency or anything else. It is your case, not theirs. Which brings me to the point that you don't hire a lawyer unless you completely understand what they're saying they intend to do and what the outcome might be. Choose carefully. If you run through several lawyers, no lawyer is going to take up a case that has already been litigated poorly. I call that job legal proctology. Our job frequently becomes one of mitigating the damages that have already occurred in the procedure of your case. If you don't understand what the lawyer is saying, then ask. If you still don't understand, then the lawyer probably doesn't know how to present the issues well in court. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has any value for you, if the blog has any value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Tonight we have the very businesslike and knowledgeable attorney Patricia Rodriguez, who returns to our show to talk about uh, California, uh, well, the 
it's SB 900, now it's law, uh, and pre-litigation planning, wrongful foreclosure, rescission, and non-judicial resolutions, that means outside court, like short sales, short pays, modifications, large cash for key settlements, loan modifications, additional time, and money in the property. Patricia Rodriguez is a returning guest on our show, not only because of her skills as a litigator, but also because she has pursued non-judicial resolution, settlements out of court. I, as many of you know, have frequently taken the position that it is ridiculous to come begging to a company that was not the lender of the homeowner, who is not the creditor, and who has no authority, apparent or otherwise, to represent a lender or creditor. But I must admit that I have enabled modifications, short sales, and other settlements even though I am still firmly convinced that borrowers are settling with the wrong party. And the reason why I advise some people to settle is simple. Sometimes appearances become the law, or they're treated as though they are the law. The legislative movement in this country is already on to reset title and remedies for wrongful foreclosure, that will eventually, in my opinion, result in making the modifications lawful, even though the pretender lender has no right to enter into the settlement. Borrowers are forced to apply and even beg for modification or other settlement because the members of the judicial bench are routinely dismissing the rightful claims of wrongdoing by the banks, the servicers, and the companies that provide layers of service to the Wall Street banks. But I will still point out that the number of people who are winning foreclosure cases is rising. You can reach Patricia Rodriguez um, at her offices in Pasadena, California, at 626-888-5206. Patricia, welcome back to the show. Hi, Neil. Well, thank you so much for having me, and what a wonderful introduction. <laughs> I specialize in introductions. Um, so. let's, let's start with those modif modifications, short sales, and short pays for a moment here. Sure. So, yeah, I what, mean, when you're talking about... Uh -huh. I was just going to ask you for the edification of the audience, what is the short in a short sale or short pay or short refi? Great. Yeah. So when you filed a lawsuit and you sued at a wrongful foreclosure or SB 900 or rescission, and now you're trying to find out ways that you can resolve that lawsuit, um, there's a couple different ways. The first way is you can negotiate to do a short sale. And a short sale is where the bank agrees to accept less than what they claim they're owed, and they write it off, off as a loss. So, for instance, 
they say that they're owed 750 uh, 750000 and the property can sell for 500000 And so they agree to take the 500000 in lieu of the seven fifty and take the 250000 as a loss. It's a little bit different than a short pay. A short pay is much better for the borrower if it can be negotiated because of the lawsuit. A short pay says um, they owe or they claim that the bank claims that the borrower owes 750000 And in this instance, the bank agrees to knock off some of that and short the, shorten the payoff amount down to a lower amount. So they'll agree to knock off 150000 and now the payoff amount becomes 600000 It's not a loss for them. There's no tax uh, consequences. It's not a loss. It's a shortened amount that they say they will accept as payment. And now if the fair market value is $675,000, they have got 75000 in equity. And so the bank would do that because you're going to agree to release the lawsuit and you're going to agree that if it doesn't sell within a certain amount of time, 120 days, 180 days, whatever you've agreed on, that the amount will go back up to the original payoff amount they claim of 750000 and you will not contest the foreclosure. And so you're selling off your right to contest the foreclosure and you're selling off your right to um, this, um, this lowered amount of uh, payoff in exchange for selling within a certain amount of time. And so what's really important in that scenario is that you already have a buyer set up. So that's the difference between a short pay and a short sale. Got it. So now the, the, the important takeaway from that is – uh, and I've seen this myself, uh, you need to have a buyer in place with a contract and everything else for a short sale before you ask for approval of the short sale. And you also need somebody like Patricia who's going to lean on them uh, because anybody who's had experience or has heard of the experience of applying for a modification, short sale, short refi, or whatever, knows that the first three times they submit papers, they're going to get a response back that the papers are either incomplete or were never received. So you need somebody, uh, preferably an attorney. Uh, there are some aggressive HUD counselors uh, uh, who have had some success with this, that will uh, uh, keep their feet to the fire and know how to leave the footprints in the sand so that they can't say they didn't get something. So do you have any comment on that, Patricia? Oh, that, that's absolutely accurate. If you are going to do it on your own or without an attorney, you need to make sure that everything is going over in writing, preferably email. You want to have a very, like, strong written record of everything. It's definitely about knowing your rights and being able to enforce your rights and certainly having an attorney who can negotiate how much of the payoff is going to come off, whether or not the short sale is going to get uh, accepted is vital, especially if you have a pending non-judicial foreclosure sale coming up. You really want to make sure that you have a lawyer there working with you to ensure that that sale doesn't happen while you have a pending short sale or you have a pending short pay. The other thing that I would say about having a lawyer involved in these settlements 
uh, is that every business and everybody who does deals in the marketplace always has at least one layer, sometimes many times several layers. And if you employ a lawyer, the lawyer can be aggressive or they can be passive, whatever is needed to get the settlement um, in ways that won't lock you in because only you, the homeowner, can make the final decision on what that settlement is going to be. So whether it's Neil Garfield or Patricia Rodriguez, I can say anything I want about, you know, let's settle for $100,000 or whatever. And when they tell me how ridiculous I, I am, uh, uh, you know, when we go back to them, um, it can be made clear that uh, the one thrown under the bus is me as the attorney and that the homeowner is far more reasonable than the attorney. Um, any comment on that, Patricia? I'm speaking for myself there, but. Oh, no, I agree entirely. Even myself, even though I am an attorney, I have attorneys for a, any number of things. I never represent myself. They once told me, you know, someone who represents themselves has a fool for a client. So I think it's really, really important that you separate yourself emotionally from the situation and you also get that independent uh, position and you get the layer of uh, nothing that's being said is truly coming from you. It's coming from your representative and there could always be something lost in translation. Right, exactly. And, and I think that um, uh, one of the things that uh, – uh, having a, an experienced attorney like you uh, uh, involved in, in this process is that the homeowner is dealing with the largest investment of their entire life. And they've got a lot of emotional baggage that goes with that. It's very helpful to get the opinion of someone who is actually on your side, even if they're telling you something that you don't want to hear. So, uh, uh, I, I've, you know, I've been pounding this drum for ten years about getting a lawyer, but I recognize that there are many people who. Uh, at least feel that they're unable to retain counsel. I would say that most of those people actually could if they were motivated, but for them, either the litigation or the settlement uh, seems more like pie in the sky because they've seen what's happened around them, and that's why they're unwilling to pay for it. Um, so... Um, what is the landscape now, Patricia, in, in California for these settlements? Are they getting easier? Are they getting harder? What's, what's well, the, well, the next? Yeah, let me break down some of these issues that we're experiencing here in California. Uh, when you start with the wrongful foreclosure, I think it's really key to understand that as far as California, if you're pre- non-judicial foreclosure completion, you're going to struggle 
to prove a wrongful foreclosure claim. They want you to be able to show that the foreclosure has actually occurred in order to have standing. You can argue that you have standing pre-foreclosure, but in all reality, it's likely to be unaccepted as a viable argument. Even once you're past, you know, the sale and you're now, you know, in the portion of Evanova that is covered and you have standing, the question then becomes, is what you're arguing about that the bank did wrong make the assignment void or voidable? And uh, several courts now here in California have said the improper securitization, the fact that the assignments didn't make it into the trust by the closing date or the cutoff date makes the loan voidable and not void. So it's really critical if you're going to make an argument for wrongful foreclosure that you either argue an extension of the law for pre-foreclosure cases or that it be a post-foreclosure case and you show that there is something that makes the assignment void. For instance, it was a defunct company who executed it or there were multiple assignments executed and the, you know it's convoluted as to who actually owned the property at foreclosure. These types of issues are ones that the courts are still actively paying attention to. But if you cannot show that it is void and all you can show is that it's voidable, then the courts are likely to um, be disinterested or unconcerned by it. They also are now allowing you to show damages once the sale has happened. It's much harder to show damages pre-foreclosure. Then you look at the SB 900 claims, and those are still going very strong. The courts are still very much so inclined to enforce any kind of wrongdoing in the loan modification review process. The main thing there is also you have to show damages. You have to show that even though the borrower is continuing to live in the property without making mortgage payments, they've actually suffered in that whatever mo modification they should have received, they haven't, and instead they're left with the loan that they originally had. The difference between the loan they originally had and the modification they should have had, which you need to get from an expert, that is their damages. So again, the difference between what their loan actually currently is and how much they would pay over the life of the loan and how much they should have been paying over the life of the loan had the loan been modified properly, but for the bank not doing that. And so... Uh, those claims are working. Um, we're, not, we're seeing a lot of pushback on rescission. However, if you're within that first three years of the statute of limitations, we have seen those claims get farther. And those claims are, to a large degree, pending in the appellate courts now. And so they may have a different outcome ultimately. So that's kind of the three big areas that we are pushing forward in terms of getting the best settlements for our clients. We have been seeing settlements range from 40 to 80,000 um, and six to nine more months in the property. Um, they can also range from 3,500 to 10,000. It really depends on the facts. It really depends on how long you've been in the property without making the mortgage payment. And so those are some of the different outcomes we've seen in terms of cash settlements. In terms of loan modifications, we're still seeing a lot of loan modifications, uh, one to five in any given week. HAMP has expired as of January 1st, and so it is critical to know that HAMP no longer exists. Uh, so now you're looking at all the non-HAMP programs, all the in-house modifications, but those are still working. So I would say consistently, you know, each and every client is made better by their arrangements with the firm, for sure. Just to piggyback on uh, one of the things you said about void and voidable, uh, logically, and I have argued this, logically, the, uh, the even-over decision made it clear that a 
proper action for wrongful foreclosure lies after the sale. But if the foreclosure was wrongful, then it shouldn't have been allowed in the first place, and therefore uh, the void treatment after the sale should apply before the sale. This is another case of where appearances can become law. The, uh, the fact is, as Patricia pointed out, that the courts in California and other places have decided that they're going to treat any legal proceedings in which the claim is made that the assignment was void uh, as voidable if it's before the sale. Now, that may not make sense, and there's lots of laws in, in every state, California included, that don't make any sense. I think it has no logic to it, uh, but it has policy to it. It's politics. And um, I think that, like I mentioned before, the job of the attorney is to focus, narrow the issues to those things that are going to get traction. It's not enough to be right if you want to win. You need to actually focus on those things that have the best chance of winning. So, uh, well, let me ask, Patricia, you have any comment on that? Only that I can agree with you. Okay. You know, again, it's not, it's, well, it's not about being right. You know, it's about persuading the trier of fact. And so we're not the ones making the decision. It's not the client. It's not myself. It's someone else. And if you can't persuade them and convince them that you're right, then it doesn't matter your position except to the extent that you're going to challenge them on appeal. Exactly. Which is going to cost more money and more time. So, the other thing that uh, we said we would talk about and that I mentioned earlier in the show was pre-litigation planning and strategy. Uh, you want to talk about that for a bit? Sure. Um, I think what's really important there is to know that, especially in the non-judicial foreclosure places, as soon as you get that notice of default, you need to contact an attorney. You need to be working with somebody. You need to be assessing whether or not you need particular audits, whether it's a forensic audit, an accounting audit, or a securitization audit. You need to be seeing you know, the experts in terms of them analyzing your paperwork. And then you need to be pulling the public record. And then you need to be drafting your complaint. And that's all the pre-litigation work, the really the groundwork that gives you the foundation for a successful uh, fight against the banks. What are the specific things that you, as a practicing attorney in California, what is it that makes a client a good client to have, um, assuming they have uh, come to you before litigation and uh, with enough time to actually do something? I think it's all about expectations. 
You know, it's about them understanding what they can get from the litigation. If they're coming in with the expectation that the lien is going to be stripped in its entirety, then they need to understand that that's a small possibility. It's not that it's impossible, but the probability is small, and it's really about rolling the dice and getting the right judge for something like that. And so I think it's all about expectations. If they come in with the expectation that we're going to do the best we can to keep them in the property for as long as we can, saving them as much money as we can, and getting them as much money as we can at the end, that's going to happen every single time. In between all of that falls the loan mods, falls the short sales, falls the short pays. And for a lot of people, they stay in the property a year, two, four. And during that time, the property value goes up. And so now they came to us two days before a foreclosure sale, going to lose all of their investment only to walk away three years later with 200,000, 400,000 or more in equity. So it's about staying in the fight. Yeah. I think, uh, if anything, uh, has been proven to be absolutely true. It's that persistence pays and the, 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 the obvious meaning of that is, um, within the context of knowing that in any legal fight or any other kind of fight, political, whatever, you're going to have ups and downs. There are times that, you know, you're going to be really happy with what just happened, even though the case is not over. And, you know, um, as Patricia says, that may raise your level of expectation but you can't draw a trend line from one dot. So the fact that you may have succeeded at a hearing or whatever uh, doesn't mean that you've stripped the entire lien or that, you know, you're headed uh, for the stratosphere. <clears throat> the same thing is true if, if when you have one of the low points. There's no such thing that as, as a lawyer or any litigant that wins everything all the time. It doesn't mean that the lawyer sold you out. It doesn't mean that the lawyer was not trying their best. And it doesn't mean that the lawyer didn't do the best that could be done. Again, you can't draw a trend line from one dot. The fact that you just had a setback does not mean that all is lost. So you need to have some perspective, and that's what you rely upon your attorney for. I've, I've had... If I, if I could say one yes. thing on that, Neil. I had someone recently bring to me a case where they knew somebody who had gotten quiet title. And they had gotten quiet title against Greenpoint funding, Greenpoint mortgage funding, which was the original lender. And so, great, that's wonderful. The original lender has no claim to come after the property right now. It's that the original lender isn't the one who filed the notice of default. They aren't the one who filed the notice of trustee sale. And they aren't the ones trying to foreclose right now. So you need to make sure that you understand what judgments people are getting and what those judgments mean and understand that when a lawyer is explaining to you that, yes, that may have some effect and mean something, but it doesn't mean that the lien was stripped in its entirety. And so be wary of anyone who's claiming to have done that without seeing 
a deed of reconveyance. That's what you need to see is a valid deed of reconveyance. And be careful there because then there are people who do the administrative remedy process, but we're getting off on a tangent. So I just say be careful that you truly understand what you're looking at before you believe what someone is telling you. And speaking of tangents, I want to take you off on one, which is quiet title. Um, there have been a number of uh, non-lawyer offices, non-licensed uh, people, many of whom are well-intentioned, that have uh, that market their services as though quiet title is a sure thing. Some of that I contributed to. 10 years ago where I thought I initially thought that quiet title might be an applicable remedy I do not think that quiet title as the main thrust of a complaint um, in either California non-judicial or Florida judicial I do not think that quiet title will get traction uh, unless you have an unusual situation where you have the facts in which you can plead that the mortgage that's recorded in the county records is void and was void when filed. Now, um, it is void if it's been properly rescinded, but as Patricia said, there's a lot of resistance to rescission, even though it's clear what it means and what it should be doing. The fact that a mortgage shouldn't be able to be enforced is not grounds for quiet title, and that's basically what these people are, uh, are missing because they're not lawyers. And I know that some people are paying thousands of dollars to these people who say they've got lawyers on the line ready to do it and all that. They've had no success, and they're not going to have any success unless that mortgage is void, not voidable, not unenforceable, but just void. And uh, in the law, we use the Latin ab initio. It was void ab initio uh, from the start. So when that mortgage was filed, if it was void for a variety of potential reasons, then you can get quiet title. But if it's voidable or if it's avoidable uh, or if it's unenforceable that's not going to strip the encumbrance you're not going to get an order from a judge that says I declare that mortgage void and removed from the chain of title on this property so it's really important and that's why I said don't mistake your Google search for a law degree it's really important that before you pay money, before you take action, before you make a decision, that you 
actually get the advice of a lawyer who knows. That law degree does count for something. So um, my point here is, and, and I know this is a ticklish point out there, the companies that are offering quiet title as a business plan that is going to achieve results for homeowners is mistaken at best. They're proceeding under an erroneous presumption. Patricia? Yeah, I mean, I'm here, and I have to agree with that at this point, especially in California, because every judge I have seen this claim presented to wants you to tender. They want you to put up the balance of the loan absolutely every time. They want you to tender. If you want something in equity, they want you to do equity. And so I think that uh, makes it a very challenging scenario. Now, the other thing you mentioned, tender, is that I'm starting to look at the tender laws in various states, and they're kind of interesting. Uh, in Georgia, for example, if you tender, and tender means for real, not just a check that couldn't be cash because there's no money on the account. Right. <laughs> if if you if you tender payment and there's no response for 10 days, the lien is stripped. And in other states, they have similar provisions. Tender laws tend to be different from state to state, so you need to be very careful about what your state says about tender. But it may be um, uh, a good remedy like the, the AMGAR program, which offers a, a, a payout, uh, it's a form of tender, uh, it may be a fairly strong, uh, well, it is. I mean, I've had uh, 16 cases, 100% uh, success, uh, where tender is possible. Now, what does it mean, if, is tender possible? Well, the simple answer to that is tender is possible if you have somebody who happens to have several hundred thousand or several million, whatever the, the amount demanded is, happens to have that around in, in cash and who can uh, uh, basically set aside that money as proof that the tender was real. And the only thing for those states that are severe against a so-called creditor who does not uh, uh, accept tender, um, the the only thing that uh, um, that they can do is they can still uh, up to a point depends on the state. They can still pursue the debt, but they no longer have the security. And in some states, it may be that their right to pursue the debt is also extinguished. So uh, I'm seeing that 
around now too, and I am aware of several uh, operations where that is being done. But the trick is to get investors who are willing to put up the money for the tender and then accept a fee for their risk of having to pay, you know, maybe twice as much as the property is worth. So I just want to alert everybody that uh, I'm looking into tender and uh, as a strategy which could have real legs because my experience has been in in the 16 cases that that I've done that the uh, banks or servicers uh, come into court and say, we don't have to accept the money, we want the foreclosure. And even the most bank-biased judge will say, wait a minute, what? And if the case is ultimately about money, not about foreclosure or title to the property. If, if, if real payment of the entire amount demanded is offered, it's case over because either they're going to accept it or if they don't accept it or reject it, it doesn't make any difference which it's treated the same, then they've lost their lien. So uh, in some states, other states have different rules, and that's why I say it's very important not only that you read the statute, but that you go to a lawyer who can look up the case law to determine whether or not this is uh, something that can be done, and assuming you have the resources. Patricia? Yeah, I mean, it's a little different in California. Um, it definitely doesn't mean anything if you tender. It just means that you get to go forward with the lawsuit. So uh, it's just a little bit of a different analysis. Right, right. That's what I said. Every state is, is different, so you can't assume anything. So, as usual, we've run out of time. Uh, Patricia, it's been wonderful having you on the show again. And I'll remind our viewers that to get in touch with Patricia Rodriguez in Pasadena, her telephone number is 626-888-5206. And uh, in order to call our number uh, here at uh, Living Lies or our sister Lending Lies, it's uh, 202-838-6. Three, four, five, and I thank you for being with us, Patricia, and our audience. See you again next week. Thanks, Neil. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to the Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at the Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com 
or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.